Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I've been out and about at Rising, Melbourne's new winter festival. It's certainly very much a winter festival. Um, the uh, the cold snap that we're enduring uh, certainly adds a bit of a frisson to going out and seeing work. There's a range of works being presented by the festival, some commissioned by the festival and featuring Australian artists. And for the first time in a couple of years, such a delight to have international guests presenting work at the festival as well. One such work is called 21 Pornographies. It is created and performed by Meta Ingvartsen, who joins us now via the magic of Zoom. Meta, good morning. Good morning. Now, this is a work which is exploring the way that pornography has seeped into everyday life. And we're not just talking about pornographic images that anybody can watch at any time on their phones or on their laptops or their devices at home. We're talking about the way also that the, some of the elements of pornography, detachment, clinical precision, have seeped into media coverage, have seeped into uh, representations of the military as well. It sounds like a very complex and provocative work. Take us back to the start of 21 Pornographies and talk to us about the themes you wanted to explore in the work. So 21 Pornographies is a solo performance that I made in 2017, and it's actually part of a, a larger series um, called The Red Pieces, um, in which I was dealing with, with sexuality and its relation to the public sphere in, in various ways, uh, also dealing with the indistinction between uh, privacy and, and public space, or how privacy is becoming invaded by the fact that we all the time use um, computers and internet and kind of media to um, separate, not no longer separate our working life from our private life. Um, so that's kind of the context that 21 Pornographies uh, came out. It's also the last one uh, in the series. So the first time that I was going into the more darker sides of, of the topic and also looking at um, the relationship between power and violence and sexuality, whereas many of the other works were more about uh, pleasure and enjoyment. Um, and uh, so my interest was really to, uh, to also look back at the history of pornography, because in the very beginning it was actually a literary form, and also having to do with um, imagination, which is, of course... Um, perhaps quite different from the type of pornography that people have easy access to uh, online uh, today. Um, so that was one side of it. And the other side was indeed, as you explained, um, that, that I understand uh, pornography almost like a mechanism that has to do with uh, excitation and frustration and excitation that then gives the desire for another uh, frustration or another excitation to happen. Uh, and and that um, uh, Paul Preciado, a, a theorist, has actually described as a as a kind of mechanism that has then also been adapted by other forms of expression. So in capitalism, it's something we see, um, for instance, with um, cliffhangers in, in movies that there is this build up that 
could look like an orgasmic release that then produces the frustration and the need to see the next episode of the film. That's to say it very simply, but it's a kind of idea of, of a mechanism of consumption that is cyclical and for that reason connected to, uh, yeah, excitation and frustration. And that mechanism you've just described plays out in daily life so often for anybody who's engaged on social media, for example, posting something on Twitter or on Instagram, on Facebook, kind of getting excited by people's responses to it, then the frustration that people aren't responding enough, that you need to post more. Um, These mechanisms really have pervaded and infiltrated daily life. So in, in 21 Pornographies, this is perhaps uh, having not yet seen the work, but thinking about what you've just said, we're talking about not only um, our response to porn and the way porn has saturated the world, but our response to capitalism and consumerism and the way those forces have inviggled their way into the most intimate parts of our lives and used it for their own pleasures, their own devices, their own, uh, like a virus, uh, replicating themselves and forcing us, or, or, or not forcing us, but um, encouraging us to to use these things to the point where our behaviour becomes obsessive, which is then a connection to porn, because again, there's that, the access to porn in, in everyday life, again, can become obsessive because fulfilment becomes less and less each time. That's uh, yes, indeed, and uh, and I think that um, in a way, in in commercials, I mean, it's very obvious how desire and pleasure are used to to sell products, and that's also something that I have uh, explored in earlier works, um, where we literally um, make out with objects, which is kind of an alienating uh, force. So it's um, yeah, it's something I have been exploring uh, a lot. This relationship between um, desire, uh, sexuality, um, capitalism, the way desire is used to um, enhance um, consumption. And um, and I think that in 21 Pornographies, what also is really at stake is um, looking at things we actually don't want to look at usually. So I'm also... Um, diving in to the darker sides of sexuality and also, as you mentioned before, the, the relationship to war pornography, um, which is an idea or a concept uh, that, that has emerged that, that sexuality has also been intertwined with war um, and with abuses of power, and that has actually always uh, been been the case. Uh, I'm, I'm Danish, so we know very well that the Vikings were also brutal and raped uh, people uh, wherever they they went, um, but but that it's also inherently connected to war. Um, that that power, the abuse of power and sexual power, is is happening quite often. And literally and happening. So that's also one. Sorry, and literally happening right yes. now in Ukraine, for example. Yes, right. Yeah. Um, so that's indeed. Uh, the, let's say the the the, pro- the performance is actually structured in in three sections, and the the third one of them, I'm I'm diving into to those questions, um, but but in a fictionalized form. So, so the performance uh, is is linked to documentary materials or to materials that are derived from from real life, 
Um, but what I do in the performance is also that I, I work with this um, fictional or imaginary world where it also blurs the borders between good and evil, between uh, what we're allowed to um, imagine or not, uh, whether we should have uh, a morality that tells us to um, set a border when it then also comes to desire. And that's where, for instance, Makibisat, which has been one of the inspirations for the, the first part of uh, the performance, that he was um, an advocate for a total freedom. Um, and that has been very debated and it's also very problematic. But I'm someone who thinks that that uh, freedom of expression, uh, especially in art, is a, is a very important thing uh, to defend and to also continue to um, work on in spite of that sometimes meaning going into places that um, are difficult to be in. And there's a lot to unpack there, but let's pick up, for example, the the influence of the market decide on the work, and in particular the work uh, 120 Days of Sodom. Now, yeah. uh, you talked earlier about pornography initially being a, a, a literary device. Uh, it's since become a, a much more kind of visual device. And when you mentioned war pornography, the vision that springs to mind uh, is photos from Abu Ghraib, for example, prisoners being paraded naked, uh, mocked and humiliated. Yeah. Um, Dissard, um, that uh, the interplay between desire and power are so fundamental to 120 Days of Sodom. Talk to us about how that book and, and how the market decides philosophies and writing impacted or, or helped drive some of the early ideas for this work. Yeah, so actually it's also connected to Pasolini's uh, filmatization uh, of the 120 Days of Sodom um, because when I saw that uh, film many years ago, um, I was extremely impressed by this um, way the the violence was depicted, there was a certain um, smartness and a certain uh, way of framing um, images that I was very impressed by and very interested in. And it, it gave me the idea of working in theater with, with the idea of, of framing and reframing and zooming in and out and, um, and working also with um, uh, stories inside, so frame stories that are stories inside of stories. So like basically the, the whole work is based on me telling a story, bringing people into an imaginary space that of course isn't there, but that in theater is possible to paint through uh, words. And um, and then little by little, I, I start to embody um, different scenes. And indeed the, the first scenes are, are a mixture of the writings of Maki de Sade, the descriptions of, of film scenes of different kinds. Um, and and the, the narrative is a narrative of a, a president, a bishop, a, a duke, and a magistrate who are basically abusing a group of, of uh, young uh, children. So it's a it's a terrible uh, narrative about power and violence, and um, also connected to eating shit. So it's it's really as bad as it gets. Um, but what I'm trying to do is to tell these stories in a way. Um, that allows the audience to relate to it. So it's also actually the literary form of the sad was, was um, uh, kind of parody or comedy also. So there is an element of, of humor um, in it as well. And that was quite interesting here um, in Melbourne yesterday, that the humor side came out quite a lot. And I think it's connected to the fact that 
that people really um, uh, um, understand English well here, which is not always the case where I play in Europe. Um, so that was that was very interesting. That that the side of the humor, because that's actually um, what is so interesting in the writings of the side that there are these ways of stepping out of the story, making a comment that produces a space. Because for me, it's a lot about creating a space for an audience to listen to, to experience and feel, but also to reflect upon how do we actually deal with images of, of sexual violence that are not necessarily easy to look at usually. Uh, how can we create a space for those images to be treated and to be um, absorbed and looked at in a, in a critical setting of, of theater? But of course, also also in the sensorial setting of, of theater. So, so it's also um, I'm also a, a naked body standing in front of you talking. So there's a lot of different things to um, deal with um, while the, the show is going on. And as it goes on, um, the the frame stories they they move in and out. So sometimes I'm describing a faraway uh, past, like. A mansion, old times, chandeliers hanging down, and so on. And in other moments, I'm, I'm literally performing the acts um, that I'm describing. And uh, and later, that also moves into really um, burlesque dances because there's a certain point where I move more into uh, dealing with uh, pornographic films that were made in Denmark in the in the 70s, actually, because. In Denmark, we liberated the, the pornographic image in, in 67, and that kind of gave rise to a whole uh, series of, of films um, that were made, like soft pornographic films that were also actually comedies, uh, always made from a male uh, perspective, but, uh, but with a quite, let's say, also connected to the sexual liberation movement and the kind of, like a kind of very free way of, of dealing uh, with the naked body, which I uh, found interesting. It's also the commercialization moment of, of the naked body because these films were shown in movie theaters, uh, like, and not only the dark ones uh, in, in the dark corner, but also the actual movie theaters um, in Denmark. So that was an, an, an interesting moment. So what I looked for in the show is like these, like, let's say, um, iconographic moments where um, specific changes uh, happen in how we understand the naked body and the notion of, of pornography in a historical context. Meta, given the many different aspects of this work, the the philosophical uh, elements, the, the socio-political elements, your background as a dancer and bringing all of those elements together, including what I imagine would have been some challenging research to undertake how uh how how has this work shaped your view of what is ethical and what is permissible in life i know you are staunchly opposed to censorship if we shut yeah. things down they fester away in the dark and bubble mm. up in in perhaps in dangerous ways but mm. Conversely, we also live in a society where people uh, need to be protected from sexual violence. Um, we can't allow unfettered access to some sexually violent material, for example. Has this work shifted or changed your own personal thoughts around censorship and self-expression, particularly given what you're embodying on stage? 
I think, uh, of course, this work was really made. It was made the year before the hashtag MeToo movement came came out and became, you know, like I think it was about a month before I premiered. So the work was already finished uh, when the hashtag MeToo kind of boomed and, and became global, a global movement. And uh, and so, um, of course, I think that, of, of course, we I denounce sexual violence um, in all possible ways. That's not the, the question. Uh, for me, the question is about uh, what can art uh, do in a society and how is um, freedom of uh, thought and, and freedom of expression part of a democratic society that allows us to, to think about things that actually do take place. Because we also know that pedophilia, I mean, there is one case after the other within the church um, in Europe, in the, the Catholic Church. And it is not a if there's lots of terrible things that are happening all the time, uh, as you said also before in Ukraine right now. So it's, it's like we're not in a world where sexual violence is not happening and it's, it's happening every day. And, and that's the point. The point is to say, well, we have to look at that. We have to think about that. We have to uh, deal with the fact that those human desires exist, whether we forbid them or not. Because they are forbidden, it's not, it's not a matter of of forbidden uh, them, but it's about allowing our minds to think those ideas um, that lead to 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 acts that are, of course, um, unacceptable. So, so for me, that's where art, um, and I think this work has permitted that, is to say, well. If I really, I, I'm not someone who's particularly interested in war pornography, so making this work was really, really hard. And I was dealing with materials that I definitely, and also looking at historical material that I was really like, I don't want to know, like, I don't want to know this. But at the same time, um, and that was very difficult because as a performer in the work, I also have a scene, for instance, where I'm imagining making love with a corpse, also not within my personal range of desires. Um, but but that's what it is to to make art. At least to me, it is to explore or allow myself to to go places where I am challenged. And uh, I also remember while I was working on Seven Pleasures um, or to come extended two big group performances I did with with performers where we were also dealing with nudity that that we would do things that that would in a way uh, alter or change uh, how we would feel also while making love in our real life, because you cannot be working on this for years and years in a row um, without being affected. So in that sense, uh, yeah, the work is, um, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's interacting, of course, because it is, it is intimate and personal. Um, but the point of it is also saying, yeah, but sexual desires and sexual structures are also part of what makes up society and what makes up power structures in our society. So it's actually also about thinking about women's rights and it's about thinking about equality. And for me, it's, it's a larger um, reflection than, than just what is actually being spoken about in the very show. 21 Pornographies is being presented as part of Rising on until this Saturday, the 4th of June, at the Meat Market, 3 Blackwood Street, North Melbourne. Tickets are $45 to $50 plus booking fee, and you can book by going to rising.melbourne. I've been talking to the creator and performer of 21 Pornographies, Meta Ingvartsen. Thank you so much for joining us here on Triple R.
Thank you. 吃服了。Rising is now on in full swing. When it opened last year, it literally opened for a night, and then it was all over, and we packed up sadly and sobbed quietly in corners and went devastated to our homes where we were、uh, because of COVID. We were in lockdown. That's not happening this year. The festival is unstoppable. I hope. I'm Touchwood.、Um, last night, I had the absolute pleasure of seeing a new work. Uh, it's world premiere at Rising called Rewards for the Tribe. It's a, a collaboration between two remarkable dance companies: Melbourne's Chunky Move, which I'm sure will be familiar to many Triple R listeners, and Adelaide's Restless Dance Theatre, which may be less known. I'm joined in the studio by the artistic director of Restless Dance Theatre, Michelle Ryan. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on what is a beautiful piece of dance theatre. Yeah, thank you, Richard. It's such an honour to be here in Melbourne at this time and to be part of this amazing work. For people who don't know Restless Dance Theatre as a company, you mentioned in your speech at the opening night party last night that they're a company that who perhaps fly under the radar a little. Is that Perhaps because you are based in Adelaide, and the cultural conversation in Australia often consists of Melbourne and Sydney talking about each other or ignoring each other. <laughs> But also because you're a company who、uh, work with、uh, performers with disability, and is that another reason that you perhaps fly yeah, under the radar? I think so. I, I think、um, at this、uh, time, I think it's a really important time to be celebrating diversity on stage, and it's just really coming to the forefront at the moment. And I think that's why. Uh, in, you know that Restless has gone under the radar because it, it wasn't originally seen as mainstream. But we've worked very hard over the last ten years to actually bring the company up to that professional level that we can、um, hold our own on stage. So, and I think you would have seen that last night with our dancers. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I first encountered Restless at the. The company I knew about the company, but I first saw the company's work at the Adelaide Festival several years ago. A beautiful work presented in the Adelaide Hilton, which uh, uh, used the the space in such a remarkable way and, and gave us a glimpse into personal lives, private lives, what goes on behind the scenes, what happens in public. And I thought, why is this company not touring constantly? Why are they not programmed in all the major f- festivals around the country?、Um, Tell us a little bit about the Restless as a company, its ethos, why it exists. Certainly, so、uh, Restless has been around for thirty years. So, and、uh, we like to say that our、uh, our voice, our creative voice, is loud, strong, and original. And you know, we want to shout from the rafters what we do, so that everyone can can see our dances.、Um, the work in the in the Hilton was called Intimate Space, and it was a really game changing moment for for the company because it was in the Adelaide Festival, and we got a Very very different audience. It was the、um, arts audience, but also in all our、um, collateral and all the things that we put out about the show, we never mentioned the word disability. And because of that, we got a very very different audience. And I felt like that was the moment in time that 
went, okay, wrestlers is going to have its place in the arts ecology in Australia. So um, that was a very important moment. And I, I think that we've gone from strength to strength. And it was also a moment where we went, because uh, at that point, um, a lot of the uh, artists hadn't been paid as such. So, and it became very important to wrestlers that we we said, no, these guys are artists and they need to be respected and treated as artists. And part of that is being paid for professionals. So, and also, a couple of years ago, we introduced a training program because, uh, you know, most dancers go through university and, and to hone their craft and their technique. And that wasn't possible for our dancers. So we implemented this three-day training session with one of Australia's leading uh, dancers, Larissa McGowan. And, uh, you know, we treat our dancers like we treat any other dancer. And we have expectations. We have uh, a standard that needs to be reached, if not beyond. So a I feel like we've grown up and we're now you know being presented in festival contexts so we've we've been in three Adelaide festivals in one in five years um we have uh, we have toured overseas and um we're looking forward to taking this work rewards to the tribe to the UK and then to have another season in the Adelaide tell us a little bit about how rewards for the tribe came about as a collaboration with chunky move yes yeah, so actually the conversation started quite a long time ago i think it was 2017 when i was in a cafe with julia carruthers from the warwick art center and uh, she asked me you know what if you could have a dream dream project what would it be and i said i'd love to work with um Kanduko, which is the UK's um, main company that works with people with disability. And uh, we kind of talked about that and the name that came up as the director was Anthony Hamilton. And I just thought that was fantastic because I've seen Anthony grow and develop over the years, um, as I said last night, from a, a dancer, a fabulous dancer, through to being an independent artist, being through to now the artistic director of Chunky Move. And so we had actually been starting this conversation before um, Anthony took over Chunky and we very much both valued the work. So we wanted to continue that. Unfortunately, uh, COVID came in and uh, unfortunately, Kanduko from the UK had to pull out of the collaboration. But we then had these two amazing Australian companies that were still uh, committed to work together. Watching the work last night, watching the integration of, of the dancers so that there is no undue focus on either the dancers from Chunky or the dancers from Restless, there was a real sense of just how focused and integrated the work was in all of its aspects, the movement, the sound design, um, exquisite lighting design, the use of props and so forth. Um, given the challenges in creating this work and rehearsals over Zoom and so forth. The fact that it has happened at all is remarkable. The fact that it has happened and it is such an accomplished and compelling and beautiful work and also a, a work that is at times playful and surreal and uh, it's really quite remarkable. Yes, I, I think it's uh, absolutely beautiful work. I feel like it's a piece of art that's just come to life. I feel like um, the, the dancers work, as you said, very well together and it's about um, us all as people. It's not about you know having labels about whether you have disability or not have disability. And I think the way that Anthony has worked with his creatives and melded the work together so that, so that the sound design is very, very important. The lighting design is important. The visual, the actual design of the stage and costumes, it's all part of making a really wonderful, cohesive work. 
And inspired by or drawing inspiration uh, and, and imagery from uh, some visual artworks that may be familiar to people. So uh, Da Vinci's um, uh, Vitruvian Man, which is that image of the, the figure with arms and legs outstretched at multiple angles in a circle, kind of some kind of perfect kind of balance and harmony, but also then using more kind of abstract works. Um, uh, uh, Mondrian, I believe. Yes, yes. And I think once you know that reference and you see the work, you, it's absolutely there. I think it's so important in the design of the work. But I do love to uh, Anthony's quirky sense of humour. There are very funny moments in there which uh, are slightly absurd, but um, it just works. It does. The, the absurdity was something that I really enjoyed because uh, – and also I, I think probably – discomforted maybe one or two audience members who aren't used to to, to people laughing at contemporary dance. Like, yes. I think I think they yes. thought people were laughing at rather than laughing with. with. Oh, it's absolutely laughing laughing with. So, um, I mean, I laugh every t- time I see the work and I've seen it a lot. So, I, you know, it still makes me have a giggle. The fact that there's that kind of the dance vocabulary that's in there, the, the visual art references that are in there. And they sit alongside references to video games. Yes, I know. Uh, so, um, yes, I, that, that is one of the moments where I do get the giggles because I just think it's so playful. Michelle, for you as the, the artistic director of Restless, was it difficult to, uh, I don't know, step away creatively from the work in some way and go, oh, no, I want to tinker with the choreography. I want to bring my own kind of ideas to, to rest on this work. Oh, no, not at all. I think that's that's the really fantastic thing about having a collaboration like this and, and, and trusting the director, absolutely. And I love it because his Anthony's work is so different to my own. And um, while some people might see that as a threat, I actually see that as a gift. So um, I think it's been a fantastic experience for the dancers. As I said, uh, you know, they've had me for 10 years, so to have someone else is actually really exciting. So I think it's a, it's been a great collaboration for both companies. That notion of threat, I just want to pick up on that for a moment because I know that uh, there has been conversation and discourse in the art sector uh, around ensuring that uh, actors with disability play parts yes, yes. Uh, uh, that... If there is a, if the character has a disability, getting an actor with a disability to play that role rather than a, a non-disabled actor cripping up. Mm. So there's been a lot of conversation around mm. that. We've still seen kind of some companies being perhaps slow to adapt that or or cautious. And I think that the the idea of threat is something that uh, that is involved with that. They go, oh, it's just going to be too complex or too hard. Yes. We'll, we'll have to employ a support worker and, and all these different aspects. It feels like this collaboration with Chunky Move disproves that, that is, these collaborations can be difficult or challenging. Oh, I think um, actually working with people with disability brings a really um, different way of thinking to, to a work. So it is absolutely an asset rather than being a, a negative. You know, it's just like anyone. You just ask, you know, what are your access needs? And it's as simple as that, that question. It doesn't have to be scary. I mean, it's uh, see it as a challenge in a really great way. The collaboration between Restless Dance Theatre and Chunky Move is called Rewards for the Tribe. It's on until this Sunday, the 5th of June, at the Chunky Move studio in South Bank. And I'll give the details in just a moment, including booking details. But, Michelle, in terms of what this work has achieved, 
What does that mean for Restless as a company in terms of where Restless will go next? Yeah, I think it just shows that Restless is uh, attracting the very best directors, choreographers, uh, other creative teams uh, to the company. And this is just another... um, indicated that we are that we can do really major works with major companies so it's been a a really fantastic opportunity for Restless and it's the first time we've performed in Melbourne for long 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 time well before my tenure as AD and that's 10 years so um, you know hopefully we'll get back to Melbourne a few more times and uh, yes hopefully continue our collaborations in different ways. Well if uh, if nothing else I think Uh, this work shows just how compelling and powerful and, yes, absurd, but also elegaic and beautiful uh, the work of Restless Dance Theatre is, and when paired with kind of chunky move, just brings it to a different level yet again. So if this work does not act as a calling card for, for the company at international festivals across the world as well as across Australia, I'll be... I'd eat a metaphorical hat, but I'd also be deeply disappointed and I will possibly write angry letters to yes. artistic directors. <laughs> Please feel free. <laughs> I, 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 I love that. Uh, uh, I believe there are still a few tickets available for uh, Rewards for the Tribe. So it's on until, as I said, this Sunday, the 5th of June at the Chunky Move Studios, 111 Sturt Street in Southbank. You can book by going to rising.melbourne. Tickets are 45 to 50 bucks plus booking fee. Uh, for more information about the two companies, chunkymove.com and restlessdance.org. And while you're at their website, given the end of the financial year is approaching, maybe you should think about making a donation to those companies as well as buying tickets to see rewards for the tribe. Michelle Ryan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. James Rule, who's the Curatorial Research Assistant of Paleontology at Museums Victoria. James, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Richard. It's great to be here. When I was a little kid, like a lot of little kids, I was obsessed with dinosaurs. You were obsessed with dinosaurs when you were younger, and you even found a fossil kind of in primary school, I believe, and you followed that through to actually working as a paleontologist. I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was in, I don't know, about grade one, but never followed through. How does how do, how do you get to where you are now? Um, well, that's a great question. Um, absolutely, the childhood passion for dinosaurs definitely drove me. I had a lot of, you know, adults in my life um, who were all like, oh, you know, you should think you're really good at science or something. You should do something else. You should do this. You should do that. And I was very, very stubborn. And I was like, no, dinosaurs or bust. Um, I was also very lucky in having a very um, encouraging family as well. Um, And just really my passion is what drives me and what keeps me interested and able to do the amazing work I get to do every single day. Um, So, yeah. Now, if we're talking about amazing, uh, one of the things you get to do is visit whenever you'd like the new Triceratops uh, that uh, is now here in Melbourne, uh, which Museums Victoria very proudly announced, and I'm not surprised. Am I correct in understanding it's one of the most complete Triceratops skeleton fossils ever kind of presented in a museum? 
Um, it is the most complete, absolutely. So we have about 85% of the bones, and you might not think that sounds like much. You might be like, come on, James, I've got 100% of my bones, big deal. Um, but just to put it into context, the most complete T-Rex skeleton has about 75%. So this triceratops is more complete than the most complete T-Rex. And if you think about it, T-Rex is the best-known dinosaur of all time, with triceratops um, usually put in second place. It's a pretty iconic dinosaur, I have to say. My friend Ben, uh, it's definitely his number one dinosaur. I probably have a soft spot for a stegosaurus or an ankylosaurus. But Triceratops is a... It's an iconic-looking dinosaur uh, and now on show at Melbourne Museum in Carlton. Um, talk to us a little bit about not just... You've said this is a kind of like the most complete Triceratops skeleton in the world. Tick, great. That's a, a, a great kind of talking point and a boasting point for Melbournians generally. But what else is it about this dinosaur that is so significant that uh, Museums uh, Victoria have kind of dedicated a, a permanent exhibition to it? Um, well, there's several things. Another thing is like the um, best preserved triceratops as well. There's some sort of amazing details you can see on the fossil itself. Um, but one of the um, primary reasons Museums Victoria wanted to acquire this, apart from putting it on public display for everyone to see and appreciate, is that Triceratops is actually very poorly understood, which is surprising because it's in everyone's kids' books, it's in all the movies, um, but people have not researched dinosaurs like Triceratops anywhere, anywhere near as much as they have to T-Rex, for example. And so one of the main reasons we wanted to get this specimen is because we found out it was so complete, so well-preserved, it was clearly so important, we needed to make sure it was in a museum so it was available for scientific research. And that way we could discover all sorts of things about the biology of this long-extinct animal. How does one go about buying a dinosaur skeleton? Because I would imagine there would have been private collectors and people going, no, I want that. Uh, as, so the fact that it is on public display and can be studied rather than locked away and gloated over is clearly significant. But how does one go about buying a Triceratops? Um, well, that's obviously a big thing. Uh, museums are often priced out of all of these um, essentially sales of privately owned dinosaurs, um, which is a big thing in the United States. Um, we essentially did it with the support of the Victorian government. Um, it's something we would not have been able to do without them. And they essentially helped um, support us acquire this specimen and make sure it landed in a museum, which was absolutely critical. In terms of putting it on display, it's not just the skeleton itself, uh I guess uh, people who went to the museum, the Melbourne Museum back in the 50s, 60s, kind of like, okay, there's a nice diorama and some skeletons in a glass box. Museums have moved on enormously since then. Talk to us about how the Triceratops is presented and what the exhibition is like. Um, so one big thing that we wanted to get across is we want to get across that Triceratops was a real living, breathing animal um, that lived in the past, and so we spent a lot of time using um, essentially 3D animation to bring to life the environment in which it lives in. So that's one of the first things you see when you walk into the exhibit. We've got a lot of digital reconstructions of what the Cretaceous, which is when Triceratops live, used to be like, and all the other animals it lived with. And then you get into the room the Triceratops is in there. Triceratops is 
just there. We've sort of simply put it on display with plenty of open space for people to marvel at. But on the walls surrounding it, we've also got a lot of um, information panels and also 3D interactive panels. Because one of the things we did when we got the Triceratops is we scanned it in using surface scanners and CT scanners. Um, and essentially put the digital models inside the computer and that way people can discover the anatomy of this animal for themselves and we use it as a branching point to teach people how triceratops used to live. That teaching aspect is such a key part of what museums do. Uh, yes, they are places of entertainment on one level where people, the general public come and marvel at stuff and then go off to, to back to school or go off to lunch, whatever they do. But they are learning facilities as well, not just for the general public, but places where, as you say, uh, scientists can come and study this skeleton, for example, and learn more about a, from what you've said, a shamefully overlooked dinosaur. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so you've obviously got the exhibitions that you can go and see, but behind the scenes is actually the museum's collections. And this is where scientists from all over the world can come visit to look at our specimens and essentially conduct scientific research on them. So I'm one of the scientists who luckily enough has had the chance to do that. Um, and without collections in the exhibit, scientists can't do science because essentially science needs to be repeatable and so if you can't go and look at that fossil yourself you can't repeat the science that others have done and build upon it um so essentially triceratops was um when we acquired it we made sure to collect as much data as we could before we put it on display so that way scientists who research are come to our facility to research the triceratops specimen we have also have access to all the data behind it so they conduct their own research themselves and what's the public response to putting triceratops on display been um it's being very very positive um Obviously, it's not hard for that to come across, seeing as it's a dinosaur, like the public, everyone loves dinosaurs. I don't think I've ever met someone who said to me, James, I really hate dinosaurs, you know, like it's always very positive. And that's sort of the feedback we've been getting. Um, since the exhibition opened in mid-March, we've got about 150,000 visitors come through. So it was one of, us, one of our busiest opening weeks for an exhibition ever. Um, so it's just being very overwhelming. And I think the key to that is people love dinosaurs and they want to come to a museum to see dinosaurs. When you say you've never met anybody who hates dinosaurs, I'm sure somewhere out there there's somebody who studies, I don't know, invertebrates or uh, something kind of small and unique that is like bloody dinosaurs again getting all the bloody attention. But you can, you can certainly understand why the public are fascinated by creatures that lived, what, in this instance, 67 million years ago uh, and that were kind of titanic and kind of literally kind of awesome in terms of you look at them and you get a sense of awe at these kind of these behemoths that once roamed the earth. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think the time also factors into that quite well. Um, if you think about it, we've got billions of individual animals and plants alive on our planet today. Um, but that's just right now. And the history of life um, goes back hundreds of millions, even billions of years. And if you think about it, how many animals we have alive today and how, many, how long animals have been around, there's millions, possibly trillions of animals that um, we just you know, can't go out and see anymore because they're long gone, they're extinct. 
And so I think the fact that dinosaurs lived a long time ago are usually incredibly large and also essentially had gone extinct, so they're not here anymore, really helps drive that fascination. That's certainly what got it for me when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with animals, and then one day I found out there were these big animals that weren't around anymore. And I was like, what? How, how do you know that that animal once existed? And that's you know, part of the fascination, I think. The exhibition at Melbourne Museum, uh, Triceratops, Fate of the Dinosaurs, um, the fact that they are extinct, how important is it uh, that an exhibition like this perhaps inspires an awareness in contemporary audiences, the general public, that extinction is not just something that happened to the dinosaurs but is continuing to happen and so many species around the world are at risk of extinction because of our rapacious attitude towards the environment. Yep. I definitely think that's not just the exhibit but something that paleontology is a science. So paleontology, for those who don't know, it's the study of fossils, not just dinosaurs but any extinct animals. Um, and that's one of the things that paleontology can bring to our society and to people today um, because animals do go extinct, like you said. And today we have an alarming extinction rate in Australia. We've got one of the highest mammal extinction rates in the world. And um, essentially, without sciences like paleontology and evolutionary biology, we wouldn't even have figured out that dinosaurs um, and other animals went extinct. And so that's one of the big parts of the exhibition is that we used to have all these amazing animals that lived in this very real environment. And then one day they just disappeared, just like that. Although not all of them disappeared, I have to say, another part of the exhibit that we have is that some dinosaurs are actually still alive today, which um, not many people um, usually appreciate, and that is because birds are dinosaurs as well. So some of them made it, but it was only one small specialised group that made it to today. It's one of the things I... Once I learned that fact, I... I always look slightly more closely at birds, just the, the claws, the way they move, the way they kind of move their heads, uh, whether they're small birds like sparrows or larger birds like parrots or all the way up to eagles, whatever it may be. It made me look at birds in a different way. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's definitely one of the things that fascinated me um, since I became a paleontologist is learning all about that. And it's also very interesting as a paleontologist to look at birds as well because a lot of the things that make birds unique, such as beaks, feathers, um, essentially a lot of the parts of the anatomy of the skeleton, they're actually not unique to birds at all. Um, dinosaurs actually evolved most of those traits before birds came along. And really the only thing that separates birds from most dinosaurs is their ability to fly. I'm speaking with Dr. James Rule, Curatorial Research Assistant of Paleontology at Museums Victoria. We're talking about the exhibition Triceratops, Fate of the Dinosaurs and some related and tangential subjects. James, you found your first fossil when you were 10, I believe, down at down near Inverloch. Uh, and there's an area of the coast there that is very, very rich in fossils, I understand, uh, kind of down on the, the southern coast of Victoria. In terms of something like this Triceratops getting all the attention? Is there any kind of disquiet or discomfort that it is overshadowing finds in paleontology here in Australia uh, of Australian dinosaurs and other Australian fossils? 
Um, well, I don't believe so, and that's um, mostly because um, the dinosaurs that they find in the US and the quality of the skeletons is something that rarely happens in Australia. So Australia is a very old continent, and a lot of erosion happens, so that's when wind and rain essentially erode the rocks away. And so a lot of the fossils that we have left of dinosaurs are either very fragmentary or often very um, small. So Melbourne Museum, for example, has an exhibit called 600 Million Years, where we have a lot of our Victorian fossils on display, which is actually really, really cool, and you should check it out if you do go see Triceratops as well. And one thing you'll notice, though, is a lot of the dinosaurs, even the complete ones we have, are just very small, very tiny. And that's essentially because of the rock record that we have left and the bias, essentially, that that rock record has to smaller animals, usually. Um, so I definitely think, though, Triceratops is really good in that it can help bring people to the museum, and while they're at the museum, they can begin to learn about the fossils we also have here in Australia, um, and essentially they can learn more about our natural history in that process. James, as a final question for you, how do you feel about the Jurassic Park films, given that most of the dinosaurs that they show weren't even from the Jurassic era? Uh, well, uh, that, ne- the, that fact never really bothered me too much because obviously they're um, brought around to the modern day in Jurassic Park. Um, one thing I think people don't really appreciate now, though, is that when the film Jurassic Park came out, it was actually incredibly accurate at the time. So it was essentially um, cutting-edge science. They had a lot of consultation with paleontologists and the author who wrote the book Jurassic Park really did his research to ensure that the animals were displaying, um, essentially being um, shown to be as accurate as possible. Um, nowadays, um, with the Jurassic World exhibition um, film, the new one that's coming out, they've also had a lot of scientific consultation on that. And so they're very much trying to make those dinosaurs um, depicted as accurately as they can. But at the end of the day, it's just a movie. And if it gives people a lot more attention and awareness of dinosaurs, hopefully they'll come to museums and discover more about the real animals that used to live. If you want to visit Triceratops, Fate of the Dinosaurs, the immersive exhibition at Melbourne Museum uh, in the Carlton Gardens, just up the road from Triple R, then uh, you should jump online. Go to museumsvictoria.com.au. While you're there, check out the other kind of museum sites uh, operated by uh, the uh, Museums Victoria uh, and... Book yourselves tickets to get along and see Triceratops. Uh, I imagine t- lots of timed entries at the moment just for to manage crowds and keep things COVID safe. Uh, yes, so it is timed entry, but a ticket to Triceratops is free with general admission. So as long as you book in advance, you will be able to see it. Fantastic. Uh, Triceratops, Fate of the Dinosaurs, now showing at the Melbourne Museum in the Carlton Gardens. Dr James Rule, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 